0: Transmission by me, Donald Dineen. Make me an island. Hello there and welcome to Make Me an Island of Ireland. This is March 2021, Donald Denine here and I'm very glad you've tuned in because we have one special show in store today. Good call. It's very much a case of stars on episode 45, because our guest is not only one of the most original voices in modern composition, but also one of the most radical vocalists working in music today, and an interstellar sonic traveller to boot. This conversation has been a long time coming. For all the years I didn't have a radio show or some such vehicle to go to in order to rap about music, I kept a diary of burning topics I'd like to talk about if I ever got the chance again. Written large across page one was the name Jennifer Walsh. For 20 years, she has blazed a trail across the world of contemporary music, all the while making work that was far greater than the sum of its parts and much, much more than simply music. This is classical composition, but not as we know it. Far from being highbrow or inaccessible, the most human of touches shapes everything Jennifer does in all sorts of magical ways. Her music is brimful of life in all its glory and insightful in all sorts of ways in terms of how we might navigate our way through the noise. As Guardian critic Kate Mollison put it, she yanks off the plastic veneer of commercial culture by parodying, then systematically dismembering the archetypes. We'll be diving straight in at the deep end right after this. Lathe Anthology of Early Music. Jennifer Walsh is with me. Jennifer, um, it's so great to have you on the show and thank you so much for, for taking the time to talk to us. Uh, oh, I have thanks to very be- much for having me my my pleasure I, I i have to declare at the start right so so the, the genesis of of me really not just wanting to talk to you but having to talk to you was um last year back in the before times when sorry 2 years ago now 19 sorry 2019 um at the open ear festival on Shirkin island wonderful festival wonderful people wonderful place um I just, you know, you see things and you hear things at concerts and at festivals and, you know, they can have a huge impact, as we all know. But then certain things stay with you much, much longer. And in this case, I think possibly forever. And that was your performance. And it was just one of those occasions where uh, I still don't know uh, what the hell was going on and, and in a very beautiful way. But I was hoping to find out maybe a little bit more. So So that work... And that performance uh, came out of uh, which which record?
1: Um, the the show that I did um, on Open Ear was I did side A of the album All the Many Peoples. So that was like that album had just come out, and so and it was a it's a piece I've done a lot, you know. So it's sort of really in my bones at this stage because the piece had different incarnations and several horrifically catastrophic and doomed and seemingly you know the portents were against us recording sessions till it finally came out on Mm -hmm. you know on Migros. So uh, that was what I did at, at Open Ear, and I'll. I have to say I'm, I'm really glad um, that you seem to have enjoyed it uh, because <laughs> it was that show was one of those shows where I I have to say for the first five or six minutes I was just going oh my god how am I yeah. gonna wrangle this audience and get them into the space they need to be gotten mm. into and and by the end I was very, very happy with the way that it turned out. but uh, So that yeah. show will remain in my, in my consciousness well, forever. Well, I,
0: I think, look, I, 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 we're not in the same room, but if I were, I'd be giving you a medal for bravery in this one, because <laughs> the thing is that, right, and I, I'll just read a little piece that's, uh, it's a quote um, just on the recording, which people can go and check out. We'll play a little excerpt in the middle, uh, sorry, in a moment. Um, but, okay, so you're saying, at the beginning, people were partying pretty hard, and there was some heckling. By the end, the whole tent was with me, and there were all shouting one more tune and cheering. I was one of those. This is what is amazing about open ear and about playing live. Having to work with the emotional and energetic space, state of the audience and push and pull in certain places to get everybody into as much alignment as possible. Tells you something new about the piece, about art, about people and yourself every single time. I, that sums it up. Um, it's, it, it, in, in certain situations, that's obviously more extreme when there's so many other factors involved. And in and in this case, you know, probably people who really had no idea, me included, um, that element of conversion or converting uh, people. Um, so so w- when it comes to that, um, Jennifer, is that sort of the hardest part of it? Or what is, I mean, apart from the technical aspect, which is quite mind blowing, is that, you know, up there with the most difficult parts of, of a performance well, like that?
1: Well, I think that What's really fascinating to me is that you can make a piece of music or a piece of art, and you don't have complete control over the setting and the mood and the time of day and, you know, the level of intoxicants in people's systems mm-hmm. when they're when they're you know listening to it or watching it, and I I think like. Over the last year and a half, we've had this weird experience where, not the last year and a half, gosh, the last year, it feels like the last year and a half. Yeah. Or perhaps who the last knows hundred with time years. anymore. I know, yeah. exactly. Uh, but over the last year, we're getting everything through the screen. And so either we switch off the comments box and we just sort of assume that other people who are watching it are liking it or hating it in the same way yeah. that we are. Or we're yeah. monitoring the comments and we're getting a little bit of taste of that. But, oh, man, can you imagine what it's going to be like when we can all be in the room again? <laughs> and and you actually get to feel that vibe from the audience live and you get to feel mm-hmm. that energy sort of shifting.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Because I, I know, you know, Roland Barthes wrote this essay, The Death of the Author, where he talks about the fact that, you know, you, you put something out into the world. And basically, it doesn't matter what the author's intentions were you know, the person who reads it or watches it or listens to it is going to bring their own experiences and their own life and their own situation to the piece. And Mm -hmm. when you're performing, um, the piece isn't the same in different situations, even though it's the same sounds in the same order. Um, You're sort of responding to the crowd and you sort of have to amp up energy or reduce energy or even just slow things down. And I'm talking about microseconds, you you know, Mm -hmm. of, of slowing, speeding up. But to get to experience that is completely magic. It's terrifying. Mm-hmm. Do you know? And at the beginning of open ear, when I was like, people are heckling me like, Oh my God, mm. do, do you know? And, and I just, I remember thinking, and I'm here, I'm not improvising. This is a piece. Mm-hmm. There's, there's mm-hmm. nothing I can do because if, if people heckle you when you improvise, you can pull that Stuart Lee trick yeah, where you say, Oh, sorry, I didn't hear you. Could you say it louder? And yeah. then they heckle you louder and you go, oh, no, sorry, I, I, I can't quite grasp that. And you can yeah. turn it around. <laughs> do, do, do you know what I mean? Like you steal all yeah. your tricks from, from improvised yeah. comedy. But yeah. but if you're doing a score, you're like, well, there's nothing I can do. And, and so what you just do is you think, OK, well, at this point, this is loud. And it would normally be loud, but now it has to be really loud because Mm -hmm. I have to just sort of shoot all my energy into the space. You're not thinking that like, because while you're thinking that you're doing 10 other things at the same time to keep the peace going. But, but I have to say, when you go through those experiences, they're terrifying, but it's a gift. It's an absolute gift to get to have those experiences, to get to feel those things. And, and I have to say what's very special about open ear is that they're growing audiences. You know, mm-hmm. there's people who come to open ear that are just wanting to just go to a cool festival where they're going to camp and, you know, dance a lot. And then all of a sudden they're being exposed to this sort of more out there stuff than they're used to. Yeah. And, and open ear are very, you know, meticulously, slowly, with patience, building and cultivating audiences yeah. so, so that they can sort of give people, give people sort of things that are a little bit out of their comfort zone and maybe they, they can be won over as well as the Absolutely. people in the crowd who were there just to come see, see it. And we're expecting it to be strange. So I do think it's a massive gift and it's going to be so intense. Like when mm-hmm. we get to do that together all again.
0: Absolutely, and and I think you're so right about that because uh, of yeah they are they stand apart. I think in just how much they're committed to growing that audience. Um, open ear, total respect for what they do. Um, just on the piece itself. Um, so uh, Jennifer, like <clears throat> one of the things that I was thinking, uh, you know, having read about it, once I heard you perform it, was that maybe the reason that it struck a chord so much was that it was speaking to me in ways about just how I am uh, consuming things in terms of the internet and so on so that you know um you know because our experience right now it's not it's yeah there aren't many things or many places or many pieces of art that explain to us just what's kind of what's going on and the overload that's happening am i am i kind of wide of the mark or is that close enough to to what it's all about
1: i'm to be honest i'm fascinated by the overload and there's two ways i can function with it i can either just be in it being you know, I sort of, I almost think of it as, you know, when you try to walk through a really windy day and you look down and there's bits of rubbish, you know, have caught on your clothing because the wind's blowing all the trash on the street towards you. And I sort of feel that's what we're all doing every day, you know, when we open up social media or open up the web, there's just so much junk blowing onto us. And and I'm like anybody else, you know, trying to deal with all of that. But when mm-hmm. I'm making art, What's really a privilege is that I can sort of stand to one side and try to look at it and think about it and maybe mm-hmm. even peel some of that trash off my clothing or, you know, weave it together into a glorious trash cloak, which I can <laughs> wear with pride. So it's 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 my way of just trying to deal with it and actually trying to process it and think about it and, and yeah. um, sort
0: what, of... It, it, Go on, so, sorry. So,
1: oh, no, I mean, I mean, that's just where it comes from. It literally comes from, well, here's this thing that we're dealing with every day. Like, like one of the exercises I often get my students to do is I say, right, open up a website that you normally use. And I want you to stand back from it and I want you to read every single piece of text that you can see on the screen. Mm-hmm. And once they start doing that you know, or you make them read to the end of a website. So they're scrolling down and down and down and down into the junk down the bottom. And once you get the students to do that, they say, Oh my God, there's just so much stuff that I I block out or I try to block out, you know, but, Mm -hmm. but so you're being assaulted. So I always say, if you think my work is overwhelming, you know, if you opened the Guardian today, you were given Mm -hmm. the same amount of information
0: you know mm-hmm. visually
1: it's just that you tried to block it all out you know and then mm-hmm. when you left the website and you felt slightly jangled you, you know you just thought maybe it's because i didn't have enough coffee as opposed to the <laughs> fact that there's just so much information visual yeah. and so- sonic and audiovisual and text information mm-hmm. being served up to you constantly
0: um, I, I Just the idea of a trash cloak, I'm just going to proceed um, very differently from now on, knowing I can have access to something like that. But um, <laughs> the thing is, right, so so maybe we could just take a tiny, a little excerpt from it so that we can um, give people an idea of what's going on. Um, so this is um, from all my people's, uh, all the people's from uh, Jennifer Walsh live at Open Ear. I got up
2: and went to the rear of the airplane by the rear... Frankenstein brain Fox Broadcasting radio Disclosed my intentions Immediately The loudspeaker screamed That the flight was over And that our airplane was already preparing To land at Kennedy New York Airport Gangster computer god Worldwide secret containment policy Made possible solely By worldwide computer god Frankenstein controls Especially lifelong Brainwash radio Quiet and motionless I can slightly hear it Repeatedly This has saved my life On the street For Worldwide population All living Have a computer god Containment policy Brain bank Brain A real brain In the brain bank cities On the far side of the moon Which we never see Primarily based on your lifelong Frankenstein radio controls Especially your eyesight, TV sight and sound Recorded by your brain Your moon brain Of the computer god Activates your Frankenstein threshold Brainwash radio lifelong inculcating conformist propaganda Even in frightening you and mixing you up And the usual Don't worry about it For your setbacks, mistakes Even when you receive deadly injuries This is the world war Computer God, secret containment policy. Look at the picture. See the skull, the bark of bone moved, the sign, radio controlled, the brain fogs broadcasting radio, the iPhone television, the Frankenstein earphone radio, the threshold brainwash radio, the latest new skull reforming to contain you go to a nearby hospital or camouflaged miniature hospital van trucks You should make it Play on the operating table which slides into the sealed computer god robot operating cabinet Intravenous tubes are connected The slimy vicious doctor simply pushes the starting button based on your computer god brain on the moon which records systematically, which records virtually <laughs>
0: Just a point there, Jennifer, at the technical level of what you're doing, is it a thing that this, uh, or has this, I mean, again, look, you're, you're talking to a Philistine, but when it comes to somebody else performing this, ha- is that possible? Or have you, has it been written down, this piece? Or, or do, do, do you know what I mean?
1: Well, this piece in particular now, I, there's a couple of people that I would trust to do it. Because yeah. what's happened with a lot of the pieces that I wrote for my, for, wrote for my solo yeah. voice, and you have to understand, I wrote these pieces just thinking, I'll be the person who performs these, and that's fine. That's not a problem yeah. with me. Um, but I thought, you know, I'll, like most of them are memorized to some extent, and then I have to have the text because there's so much text in everything, and I'm not very good at memorizing text. So, yeah. you know, there's the text as well, but the sort of the voice types, And this sort of variegation in sound, where you're sort of doing one sort of accent or speaking in one part of the voice or doing a certain extended techniques, most of that is externalized, sorry, internalized. So I, I, you know, I I don't have a problem with that. But the very nice thing about getting a little bit older is that younger um, artists start to become interested in your work. So, for example, Nina Guo, who's a really fantastic young singer, uh, she's based in Berlin at the moment. uh, She's been learning lots of my pieces. And so it's been really wonderful for me to witness her learning them and and see Mm -hmm. how they change and how they stay the same. But the Mm -hmm. main thing with uh, All the Many Peoples was that, you know, I'm trying all these different voices, all these different sounds. And and so to try to identify those and gather them and collect them and put them together and assemble them all together. um, The funny thing is I do think that this is – A sort of virtuosity that Irish people seem uniquely uh, programmed for, because Mm -hmm. the way that we communicate in Ireland is we're constantly relating speech to one another. Uh, We can't just say, I went to the doctor and I now need to take this prescription. We say, I went to the doctor and the doctor said to me. You know, what are you going to do about that? And, and then you have to relate every single thing that the receptionist and the doctor said to you. And um, like, if you even think of shows like Father Ted, part of the humor of Father Ted is the voices of all of the different priests. You know mm. that you have the priest with the boring voice, and you have Brendan Grace doing his amazing sort of psychopath priest. Mm. You know, I drove car, into a wall. and so on, and and sort of, so, so so sort of that sort of that's something the dexterity that Irish people have as storytellers and as relating speech and having an ear for speech and accents and turn of phrase. Um, I do think that I'm lucky in that sort of gave me some training. You know,
0: early on. Mm. Mhm and and then of course as well we, we are uniquely attuned to the fact that we tell each other that we have beautiful speaking voices as well don't we we say that <laughs> We
1: do actually say that I I have always been really I mean, I've always sort of been like what does that mean you, you know like cuz yeah. cuz what is what's what's the you know the inference then is like lots of people have horrible speaking voices Yeah but they don't. <laughs> exactly yeah
0: yeah unlike everybody else <laughs> Exactly exactly and um, we we're, we're 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 totally gas just on uh, I, that's a really interesting thing about the way we speak but um just um to take it one step further in technically uh, jennifer i'm going to play another excerpt from something that you recorded or released in in 2010 and uh so this is from nature data and um we're going to be hearing a piece again uh, my favorite the glori which is from the same album uh, but this here is sounds from nature so just an excerpt from nature data <laughs>
1: Oh butling oh butling oo butling oh These recordings of the underwater noises made by organisms of the sea.
0: Jennifer, what with, with training your voice or, or, or gathering these sounds or practicing to be able to do these sounds, just how much is involved in that?
1: Well, when I made the piece Nature Data, it was in, oh gosh, it must have been 2005. And it was a commission from Wien Modern for a concert that we were going to do in the Schmetterling House in Vienna, which is the butterfly house, like this huge, Mm -hmm. amazing conservatory, really, really humid, which is very nice for the voice, um, full of birds and insects and butterflies and all sorts of of creatures and amazing tropical plants. Sounds like open ear. Oh, yeah, exactly. Except the <laughs> open air was maybe 20 degrees warmer <laughs> the, the year round. You know? um, so when I knew I was going to be in that environment, I, I thought, okay, I have to do a piece where I blend in and I don't mm-hmm. want to do a piece where I'm, I'm I'm adding something that I don't think is the right sound. And so I ended up, and I mean, this was 2005. So I had to, you know, email the Smithsonian Institute and send them postal orders to get CDs sent to me that were like burned on CD or with photocopies inlay notes you know whereas nowadays I could just go on the Smithsonian Institute and buy the same thing in 10 seconds but Mm -hmm. I sent away for loads of recordings of dolphins and frogs I was really in love with the sounds of the North American frogs uh, CD in particular but I also went to loads of biology websites and you know zoology websites where I downloaded things like you know amplified sounds of maggots eating rice and chicada sounds and, you know, sounds that were transposed into the range of human hearing from bats and things like that. And to me, it was just this amazingly rich sound world, like completely mm-hmm. fascinating. And so it, it made, made sense to me to start to make a sort of a weird taxonomy of these sounds as sounds rather than a taxonomy of, you know, animals or, you know, organisms. Yeah. And and sort of build them into the piece because it was just this whole other repertoire, you know, of this whole other vocabulary, you know, and I'm still fascinated by it. And these sort of sounds come back again and again in my work. Uh, you know, it's really, really interesting to me.
0: Um, wow. The, let's move on to another piece that's on that same record. I don't know if it was recorded as far back as, as 25. So so G-L-O-R-I, is is that OK mm-hmm. to say it like that? Um what is the, like, the, so your, your idea here in terms of, of, of taking all of the uh, little pieces from pop music, maybe you could explain.
1: Well, we all have these little fragments we carry around in our head. And it's sort of shocking that, you know, I couldn't tell you my partner's phone number. But I could probably sing like the middle part, you know, of Love Action by Humanly with a high degree of accuracy, you know. So it's sort of, we we have these things and they're often really, really heavily imprinted during our teenage years. You know, Mm -hmm. there's a lot of work that music cognition people have been doing about why the music you listen to when you're a teenager um, has this deep, deep imprinting, you know, deeper than almost any other type of music. And Mm -hmm. so I was interested, you know, it was the early 2000s, um, and I was really interested in sort of databases and indexes and archives, which is a lifelong fascination of, of mine. And I was thinking to myself, what if I could make a, you know, one of these gorgeous wooden, you know, index card cabinets that you see in the old libraries where you pull out the drawers and there's millions of yellowed old index cards inside and i was thinking what if i could make one of these that was a physical representation of all the pop songs that are in my head and i thought it would be an interesting object because it would be this external representation of my memory and and also you know i was i was like sort of thinking of the the lovely feel of the wooden drawers sliding in and out of the cabinets so i I downloaded a bunch of database software and I started trying to make these lists and I wanted to tag every single sample so I'd know what key it was in, what speed it was at, what the vocal timbre was like. And it just went out of control almost immediately. And it became clear that if I were to make this wooden cabinet, I would need like 10 or 100 of these cabinets because there's just so much stuff that we're carrying around. Um, mm-hmm. And so I made this piece as sort of that was the first the first sort of thing that came out of that idea was to say, okay, well, what if I take these little examples and I sew them together and I keep them short mostly so that, you know, you only have a split second or two or maybe three or five seconds to recognize where it comes from. And so I, I love performing the piece live because mm. you um, you – really know what people's taste is. Because you hear laughs from different parts of the audience at different times. <laughs> uh, because, you know, somebody recognizes the ABO and goes, Woo you know, and Mm. and other people don't like ABBA or don't recognize it. The piece also has changed over time in that I made it in 2005. So there's like a whole bunch of popular music that's happened over the last 15 years that's not included in that piece. So that's Mm -hmm. another thing that's very, very interesting is to sort of see the the piece change and see, uh, you know, members of the audience who are maybe like 20 who don't get a lot of the references, Mm -hmm. you know, because to them that's like, Yoldy music, it, you know, mm-hmm. it's sort of, yeah, it's especially if it's ABBA or something like that. So, um, yeah. so it's, it's, it's for me, it's been, it's been fun. Again, it's one of those pieces that, that it is really fun to do live just to see how, how yeah. The music well, look, I,
0: I, I was there because uh, you played that as an encore at Open Ear and yeah, it was the, the effect was devastating. Um, let's hear it, uh, in its original recorded for, uh, form here. To
2: yellow or a- go, yeah, go, yeah, the- I tied you to a kitchen chair, and from your lips, she'd... Hallelujah! Hello, I'm not gonna make it, cause I am your lady. Hear the drum again. Life is a mystery. Everyone t- you to... Boys at the end, and tan and young, all by myself. Don't name Israel, and she dances on the eye. I love it. six, seven, five, three, Ireland, to little Riley. come on. Ireland, right, right, baby, right, head on the wall, scaramouche, scaramouche, will you all oh, be turning Japanese? I think I'm turning Japanese, I really lose a baby. So, my, my, my dear hero, I can't help wanting you, cause the way you want, it, that's the way you need. It. And if you only, don't you want me, how do you think he take me? Me? Home? Yeah, from out. Well, I guess it would be. Watch your step. Shake your ass. Show me what you gentle is the rain that for she was. She was a friend of mine. Through the wild who's that keep me alive? To keep me on poison, villain. Si, c'est, c'est la, li. la 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 la. La 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 Me Second run, I run so far I Ain't nobody dope as me I went to sleep with Dan And in the name of Tommy Alonis He got on, get fooled hey, hey, hey. Needle in the hay Needle in the sight to me I don't talk enough But when I believe U.S. town girl She's been moaning, moaning Ooh it's all so fix-up, look-star, man, waiting in the sky. He'd like to kiss, will always just listen to the rhythm of a heart. One well, thing nasty baby You're all that I Crimson My loneliness Is R-E-S-B-E-C Ooh, hoo this city on rock And truth is found To me Everybody Dream police They come to me Donation junk That's going rare You're what it's like Being male Middle class And skates who oh is yes. girl, think she's the with you darling now. I'll stay with you till the, no I was wrong. Do be wild, Hit me, want you to, crashes into us. To die, mm, velvet morning, when I'm shining there for you and me. For lib, does it fee, I wanna not want it that way. Tell me why birds suddenly appear. Every love shake is a tell you you're my soul heart today at the reception. A glass of wine and a change, my dance again. Guilty feet and girls just white, we're headways there, whoa! Are you okay? Are you okay, Eddie?
0: what an incredible piece of music I um just when it comes to what you said there about how fast you know in technically again right another technical question but you know the the speed of of what you're doing um it seems quite incredible uh to uh, somebody who, who can sing but like in in terms of training yourself to be able to do that is there like w- would it be a case of that you couldn't just do it at the drop of a hat or would you have to you know, like that goes into sort of how you prepare and so on and so forth. But there is preparation involved, right?
1: Oh, of course. Like, like with Glory, um, which is a faster way of saying (laughs) (laughs) G-L-O-R-I. But uh, with Glory, like that piece, you know, if if I know I'm going to do it in a show, I have to sort of pick it up you know, the week beforehand and just get it back under my, under my fingers, the way musicians would say, even though it's, you know, under my voice, I suppose. Um, but, but there are pieces like that, that I've been doing them for so long. They're there in my bones, you know, Mm -hmm. that, that sort of, it's, it's locked in. So generally, you know, there's different, I mean, now I make sets or I make pieces. When I started out in the early 2000s, I would make, you know, short pieces and they would sort of be sewn together into like a set, you know, for solo mm-hmm. concerts, whereas now it tends to be like, you know, pieces that are 40 minutes or 60 minutes long, but you sort of, you sort of like gradually, you were you trained and trained and trained and you're composing them. So you're doing them all the time in the studio. You're repeating them and, and changing them sure. and practicing in order yep. to write them. And then you start touring them and then they change a little bit when you tour them at first because you're just sort of working out some of the kinks, you know, live in yep. front of the audience. Um, so sort of, I would say there's there's probably a strange mathematical graph that indicates mm. like the amount of practice there is initially, and then how much you can rely on literally muscle memory. You know, to, mm-hmm. to navigate oh, okay, through, yeah. through. So, so that of kind it. of
0: kicks in as well when, when you're performing. Then um, w- one of the the other questions I had, um, and I hope you don't mind me saying, uh, Jennifer. So when when I listen to that piece, right, um, and and again, I have the benefit of hearing it uh, perform live. But um, there's an element in there. Okay, there's an incredibly visual element in your work, but also, uh, if you don't mind me saying, there's comedy, and there's so much uh, that uh, that is it's so free in that respect. Is that fair enough to say that, or is that it's something that I'm just taken from it.
1: I am perfectly happy. You 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 sound like you were nervous to say that it could be funny. Well, just
0: yeah. I, I a, it's got inverted comma. I'm oh, sorry, it's got. I yeah, am no, totally I, I
1: fine. I don't. Um, the thing is, like I'm one of those people that goes to Beckett plays and laughs out loud at the gags. You, you know, yeah. and it's if you've ever been to a Beckett performance in America, it's a slightly different uh atmosphere you, you know because Irish people are like that was hilarious and other yeah. people are like that was so disrespectful that you were all laughing mm-hmm. all the way yeah. through yeah. but but I do think it's for me there's been a long thing of just of just material that I like of just being able to put it together and you can never tell exactly when the audience is going to laugh and you can never tell yeah. what their reactions are going to be um, but over time you sort of realize very gradually you know having come from a background where you're starting out playing festivals that are much more austere than open ear you know Mm -hmm. where it's really a new music or classical music festival and you're sort of the audience have to understand it's okay for them to laugh and whereas at open ear you know people will heckle you if they feel like it and um so i think it's it's just i i write i put the material in there that i think is interesting and when it's funny, it's funny, and I try to, to learn, you know, I'm not a comedian, yeah. so I, you know, I read the, read the works of Stuart Lee and look at what's going on there technically <laughs> to see if there's anything that I can learn, and um, yeah. because, because you're just trying to, you're just, well, maybe, maybe in fact, like, if you, if you're, I had a friend who was in the Citizens, the Upright Citizens Brigade in New York, which is a sort of mm-hmm. improv school that a lot of the Saturday Night Live you know, uh, comedians come out of. And she said to me, you know, back when I lived in New York, she was talking about the fact that they had this yes and rule for comedy improvisation. So that if, you know, you're in an improv setting and somebody says to you, you know, why have you got that parrot on your shoulder? You have to say, well, I had to bring him to work because it's his birthday and he felt really depressed. You can't say, I don't have a parrot on my shoulder. You you have to agree to the reality And then you have to Mm -hmm. extend it. And so even if the, and that's what makes it absurd. And that's what makes it funny Um, Mm -hmm. because you're desperately trying to work your way within this sort of agreed reality um, Mm -hmm. that's being imposed on you by other, other material. And so I suppose Mm -hmm. in my pieces, it's the same sort of thing is that I'm looking at the material and putting it together. And I, I, I'm not generally designing stuff thinking, oh, this is a great joke. But I put these things together, you know, because I think they're juicy or they have a certain good energy or I think the juxtaposition is going to be really bizarre. Um, And it's been a real, I don't know, I've really enjoyed over the last years that people find stuff funny Um, because it's great when the audience find it funny. It's like it injects this massive energy into the space when you can hear people Mm -hmm. laughing.
0: Absolutely. And it's funny because when uh, listening and researching the interview, I have also been going back to Bill Hicks. And (laughs) and I honestly can say that there was a couple of performances where I was like, that is so similar, where he does things with the microphone, making crazy sounds. And, you know, he was a master of doing that, of um, just incorporating um, sound into his performances and sort of vice versa. So look, um, but just on the Beckett thing, um, uh, Jennifer, I, I did read that you know, in in growing up, that you were taken to a lot of experiment, or, or rather, you had access to experimental theatre, not just to to Samuel Beckett.
1: I was very lucky in that my mother is a writer, and so my mother, uh, my mother is a massive uh, Beckett fan, massive Tennessee Williams Pinter fan, and so. She, you know, was a very independent person and often just up in her room writing. So I also was around an environment where I understood that, you know, people just had their projects and they went and did them. It wasn't Mm -hmm. terribly middle class. Like we didn't have wonderful dinner parties with intellectuals. It wasn't Mm -hmm. that sort of a way. It was just more, um, you know, that there was an environment where people were working on their stuff. And like my dad, as a mature student, he uh, hadn't even gotten his leaving cert when he finished school. And so as a mature student, sorry, as a, you know, he went after he retired as a mature student, he went to NCAD. So there was a, that was another stream of like just that sort of interest that people had. But my mm-hmm. mother, being a Beckett fan, who is a night owl, would often, you know, she'd videotape Beckett whenever it was on the telly. And then she and I would sit up with all the lights out because everybody else was asleep in the house. And we'd watch, you know, not I on the telly at one o'clock in the morning and, mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And so it, it wasn't until I was older that I realized, oh, okay, I got this really bespoke, amazing education, yeah. you know, uh, particularly yeah. from my mother. Um, because at the time I sort of, you know, the other kids would say, oh, we went to the national concert hall on Friday night. And I'd be like, oh, right, we didn't. And I would think, you know, um, am I being educated? You know, am I, getting the the proper musical education and then i realized mm-hmm. i had the one that was meant for me and i was very very oh, lucky i've got to
0: hand it to your mom i'm really glad about all that so it's just um, it's a case of you know because i think i think i read another somewhere else about you saying Well, you know, maybe your first composition that it was directly related to having seen Quad. Am I right in that? Is that. um...
1: Um, My first composition was, yeah, I hadn't seen Quad. I had read all of Samuel Beckett's shorter plays in that Faber anthology that was out. And so for my first. composition, it's uh, sort of embarrassing. I wrote a trumpet quartet uh, based on quad, uh, because I I was already thinking in that sort of visual way, you know, and and it made sense to me to work like that. And I have to say, like, it also, if you're interested in experimental work, like really, you know, growing up Irish, Beckett, Joyce, Flann O'Brien, people like that, it really, you really do feel like these are your dodgy old, you know, avant garde grandads and great uncles and 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 mm-hmm. it's great for you to have that because, you know, when I when I sort of was coming up in the nineties, you know, there's been a lot of work done over the last ten years and the Contemporary Music Centre have worked really hard to try and get a lot more information about early Irish composers across. But, you know, when I was coming up in the nineties, you sort of you know, you didn't, you didn't know that much, to be honest, and you weren't being educated that much about it. So knowing that there were these writers out there doing really crazy weird stuff was really, Mm. really good for me. And, Mm -hmm. uh, and it was really grounding because you felt, okay, well, here are these, these people working in these ways. So it was, it was important for a lot of reasons.
0: And just on that point, maybe you could tell us a little bit about Ashdoc, um, Jennifer, because um, I, I, I unfortunately I have to declare I was ignorant until you sent me the link. Um, so what an amazing resource! So you could maybe tell us a little bit about it.
1: Well, it sort of grew out of probably, in fact, out of just what I've been talking about. In in that, yes, there's Beckett and there's you know Joyce and Flann and all that, but you know. I really was one of those people that when I read about the history of art and I saw photographs of the Dadaists in the Cabaret Voltaire in Zurich, I really had this feeling of like ah yeah, there's my people. You know, that's mm-hmm. that's my folks there. And then you sort of look back through Irish art and history and you're trying to figure out well where was the Irish Dadaists and they didn't exist. And, and you're thinking, oh, okay, what happened there? And, you know, and then you look at the history and uh, what was happening socially and politically and you go, okay, there's a reason that there weren't Irish journalists, but coming out of, you know, sort of thinking about those things, I thought to myself, well, why don't I just make them, you know, like Mm -hmm. it feels completely within the, the, the tradition of data that I would make sure. up the Irish da- you've, you've data. You've got the license. Yeah. Exactly. I know. I've got the official permission uh, from Hugo <laughs> Ball's ghost, dressed in his cardboard, cardboard lobster costume. Uh, but so, so I just thought oh, I'll try this out, and it would have been back in 2011. I mm-hmm. made some uh, Irish sound poetry, Ascoelga, you know, and mm-hmm. and I posted it on Facebook saying, oh, here I found these scores from the the archive, the National Folklore Collection, or something like Mm -hmm. that. And people believed it was all real. And Mm -hmm. so I wrote some music then, I wrote some sound poetry, and I was doing a concert with Tomomi Adachi, who's a collaborator of mine in Berlin, and he's Japanese, and he's very interested in the Mavo group um, in Japan, that were a historical art group that aren't so known about in the West. So he said... Would you write some of your Irish statist stuff that you want to do for this concert? So we had this strange experience, you know, of doing this concert in Berlin uh, where he was really talking about this real group, Mavel, who had existed and I was mm-hmm. talking about the Irish statist who hadn't existed and everybody assumed that he had made everything up and I was uh, being historically <laughs> accurate and yeah and we created this link between mavo and and irish data because we felt that that was important they were two countries on the periphery of the mainstream central mm-hmm. european data and things like that so ash Talk sort of came out of that of these experiments and then also I, I bought a little house in Roscommon right at the northernmost tip of Roscommon. and I really sort of decided, despite the fact that it was, you know, a little bungalow that had been built, I think, five years previously. I decided that no, I had, I had bought my family out of my great uncle Quievin Brannock's cottage, and he had been a visionary tape and film fanatic who, who was who lived by himself, and that I had gained access to his entire archive. By yeah. uh, after his passing, by taking over his house. Um, and that really, you know, moving, starting to spend a lot of my time in Northern Roscommon and sort of falling in love with the landscape around there and Sligo and Leitrim and really mm-hmm. starting to dig into folklore and things like that. Um, you know, for me, it made sense. It was like not folklore looking backwards with lovely rose not rose emerald tinted glasses on <laughs> but like weird folklore you, you know brilliant where, where were the weird radio people you know things yeah. like that so so that's what it grew out of and then we well, got
0: look, a- it, 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 discovering that and so i would direct everybody to a-i-s-t-e-a-c-h a wonderful name for it, to the avant-garde archive of ireland just going to play a tiny excerpt from that so this one is um your performance prefer- it's it's uh, a piece for the guinness Dadais.
2: Skittle, skittle, jumped and folded a third could dump. the idle jumps, skittle, skittle, jumped and folded idle, Folded a third Folded a third Folded the idle the idle jumps, jumped the idle jumps, jumped the idle jumps, jumped the idle jumps, jumped the idle jumps, the idle, the idle, jumped the idle, the idle, Flusk, lesk, 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 cousin, flusk, lesk, lesk, flusk, lesk, the idle, jumped idle, the idle, the idle, 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 the idle, the idle, the
0: so w- what you're doing there, Jennifer, is um, the Irish language, which breaking it into fragments, which kind of, I mean, yeah, as it, it says here, mobilized against all sense and meaning. But like, um, so maybe you could explain a little bit more about that.
1: Well, with Ash Talk, the idea was to go back and create this completely um, fictional archive of Irish avant-garde art and music. And to do that, you have to go back and you have to look at all the art and music that did exist. And then you have to try and find these weird sort of nooks and crannies where, you know, ostensibly you could get away with claiming that this happened, you, you know, or you, mm-hmm. but, but you can't just sort of go back and, you can't go back and like claim that there was like a really, really rich bourgeois scene you know of mm-hmm. chamber music in knock vicar Common, you, you can't do mm-hmm. that because everybody knows that that wasn't true so going back and writing um data as sound poetry you sort of start looking around for what are the materials they might have worked with and then you think well the irish language because the pronunciation mm-hmm. rules of irish are really complex and really difficult and mm-hmm. very um very challenging for somebody who doesn't come from that tradition Yep. And so you think, well, of course they would have used the Irish language, because they would have been trying to get all these sounds that you can get out of the Irish language that you don't get out of spoken English. Um, mm-hmm. And then you start to unpick it and you're thinking, should they be pacifists like the other dataists were? And you think, okay, I think they would be pacifists as far as, you know, the World War I was concerned, but I don't think they would be pacifists with regard to the situation in Ireland. Um, I think that they would be against British rule. Um, so as you start to unpick those things and sort of tie the threads together, in my narrative of the Guinness data is, um, we get to a place where they're using the Irish language because they feel it's deeply political, because you can hide secret messages in it, because it's not something that's spoken by the British.
0: Perfect. Yeah, that's amazing. And again, I would direct people to the Ashdak website and you can find um, a brief introduction to the Guinness status right there. Um, Jennifer, before we close, I just want to ask you um, again something that I read um, when it comes to the music of the everyday, really interested in the idea um You've, you've spoken about it a bit, um, about how language and sound and every, the everyday is music. And, and, and we kind of really have to kind of go or sort of tell ourselves where to look for it. And it's just all around us.
1: Well, I, I definitely think so. And I think that, I mean, I, I always quote to my students, um, Marcel Proust, that he said, only unimaginative men love beautiful women. And mm-hmm. the reason I quote that is I say to them, like, like students talk a lot about making beautiful work, or, you, you know, that was a really beautiful piece. And I'm always like, well, if we always judge things on beauty, you know, what are, how much of life are we missing if we if yeah. we say a sound has to be beautiful or a sound has to be beautiful in a very specific way? Do you know? And, yeah. and I, I definitely think it can be trying to open up your ears it's something that can be trained. And I don't mean trained by like, you know, an educational setting, even though it can be trained within an educational setting. I think it's just a mindset about Mm -hmm. sort of going into the world. And I think about like my, my niece and nephew, my nephew and niece are so used to the fact that this is what I do that they'll come to me and say, We found a sound. Do you want to listen to it? <laughs> or, like, you know, my, my nephew will pull me over and say, Oh, listen to this sound. It's really great. And it's him Wonderful. dropping a rock down a pipe that goes down into a subterranean, you know, cavern. And, I, and, and in those moments, I know, yes, kids are open minded. You, you know they're 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 able to but, but sort of my family who didn't come from an avant-garde sound background who mm-hmm. now will go to gigs, like you know, I think of Kordja Festival in Sligo, uh, put on a concert, uh, free improv concert. And I was one of the performers and Phil Minton was one of the performers. And, you know, my family who are saying Phil Minton's one of the best vocalists we've ever seen. And they're able to sort of understand what's really amazing about Phil Minton without mm-hmm. being part of like a big free improv scene. So I do think yep. it's, it's possible. And I sort of think, well, You know, God, like life is so rich and there's so much stuff and so many people to talk to and so many things to see and read and listen to. And if we just say we're only interested in stuff that we think is like beautiful in a conventional way, we're sort of failing ourselves on a human level, you know, not to to try to be more open minded.
0: Well, you've totally convinced me on that front. Um, the thing is, right? So when it final question, Jennifer, when it came to um your own, let's call it awakening, I think I read something about your time. You were in Northwestern, right? That's mm-hmm. where you went to university about the aesthetic closet and about leaving that. Is that something that that you could maybe explain a little bit?
1: Well, I think that you know we all we all think things are supposed to be done a certain way. whether that's we think, you know, families have to be structured with a man and a woman at the helm, or, you know, whether we think that the way that we have to write music is always sitting in a piano. Uh, I think these, these things are a difference in degree, you know, mm-hmm. rather than in kind. Um, and I think that it's, it's just trying to find people that are sympathetic, that will let you be you. And then we'll also kick your ass and say, you're being lazy there you know, mm-hmm. okay, you want to make a piece and it's all paper bags. So what are the different weights of paper you could use? Is the paper been right. used? Has somebody written a love letter that they cried yeah. on, on the paper? You, you know, like that will really, really push you. And I was very, very lucky. It took me a while. Uh, it wasn't until I was in my early twenties that I really had composition teachers who sort of, uh, saw my own weird self and just decided to help me push that, Mm -hmm. you know, and particularly Amnon Volman, you know, and then I've had other people who were mentors or friends or collaborators over the course of my life who keep reminding me of that. So I, you know, I'm a, I, I'm, I suppose I'm smart enough to know that I should surround myself with you know people who are smart and will kick my arse a lot and you know and that that keep me stretched and pushed and stuff like that and i'm very very grateful for the communities that i've you know the different musical communities i've worked in to to get to work with people like that
0: i suppose yeah because i suppose the reason i ask is that i i guess for people listening who i mean to me it's just a phenomenal journey and and for you to to get to this point i i was just really interested to to find out if you know a period or at a time where there was a particular mentor and it sounds like there was mentors as, as opposed to just one. And, and that again, you know, you're grateful and lucky that, that, that happened for you. Um, it's been such uh, a pleasure talking to you, Jennifer. I, in closing, I just want, maybe want you to, um, if you don't mind to, to tell us about a late anthology of early music, which is your most recent release.
1: Well, a late anthology of early music Full title, Volume One: An Ancient to Renaissance uh, came out of two things. One is that for about the last I don't know eight years, I've sort of been obsessed with artificial intelligence and machine learning, and uh, you know, been sort of educating myself about that um, as much as I can and trying to learn about it and uh, developing different projects, working with AI. And I approached. Uh, these wonderful guys, CJ and Zach, DataBots. I just read about their work uh, online one day, thought it sounded fantastic, listened to it, really loved it, and just emailed them. Uh, they've done some great projects like they have a continuous death metal, um, a, a, you know, AI generated continuous technical death metal YouTube channel and things like that. So they, and they've done sort of math rock, AI generated math rock, and bass solos and things like that. So So I I just emailed them and just said, hey, I just read about your work. It's fantastic. You know, um, Mm -hmm. asked them a couple of technical questions about their Beatles, their AI-generated Beatles. And they wrote back and they said, hey, you know, we like the look of your work, too, if you ever want to do a collaboration. And I said, sure, I have all these vocal, you know, solo vocal uh, files. So I sent them to them and then they sent me back, I think it was 841 uh, files and normally when you train an AI system or a machine learning system, I should be specific in this case, you, you get to hear the best results. You don't hear all the tests and all the yeah. sort of training. You just hear the best results. But they'd sent me everything. So I could hear like the very first file was just the system going, ah, you know, as a, 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 which was hilarious to me. And then the end file was, you know, and it sounded like Jenny improvising. And so I sort of had these files, but had a lot of other stuff going on. And I thought, I want to park these and just wait for the right, you know, the right um, project. And then one day I was looking uh, on the shelf at the books that I'd used to teach music history back when I was doing my PhD, which were these anthologies of Western music. And I was thinking about the fact that You know, we were given this like very clear party line when you teach Western um, art music that you have plain chant and everything evolves logically out of plain chant. You get bits of plain chant which are stretched out for longer or have extra lines added to them. And then slowly you get the motet and the mass and then you get Bach and Mozart and Beethoven. Um, And so I was thinking this is this is quite interesting, this narrative that they made us teach, when in fact life is also very messy. And I thought, oh, I want to project my files onto that because my machine learning system went through the same thing. It went from something ostensibly simple to ostensibly complex. So I sort of took the history of Western art music from the ancient period to the Renaissance and mapped my voice or mapped the, the network learning to use my voice onto it. So you get these very weird cover versions of plain chant and palestrina yeah. and things like that. So it was mm-hmm. a lot of fun to make. I had no idea what any of the results would be like. And yeah, uh, yeah and it was, I was very surprised that um, Wobbly, uh, John Lidecker, who's a collaborator of mine, um, I showed him this. I just said, I've been doing this weird thing you know, because he was talking about John Dowland. And I said, oh, I have this John Dowland cover. And I played it to him and he said, you should release this. And I was like, nobody's going to want to listen to this, you know, yeah. AI yeah. versions of early music. And he said, no, I think you should release it, Jenny. And I'm very, very grateful to him that he pushed me to do it because uh, it's been quite, it's worked out quite well. Lots of people yeah, like I'm it. Yeah, I'm very
0: glad that he pushed you to do it and that you explained it to us because it's just wonderful and we're going to play out with Giovanni da Palestrina, right? And, and the thing is that this is actually the, not the AI version of Donald Ian, even though I would imagine that that would be <laughs> much for, for a much better presenter of Make Me an Island. Um, Jennifer Walsh, it's been such a pleasure talking about your work today on the show and uh, thank you so much uh, for, for your time again and thanks to all our listeners and I'm going to play you out with a piece of music from uh, the uh, a late anthology of early music.
1: Thanks very much, Donald. Absolute pleasure. Thanks so much oh, for. Yeah, I was a big well, no I'm, disco fan back in the day. Oh, get it out was of the here. Coolest no thing